Where should we plant a church? When should we plant a church? Who should the church planter be? How do we mobilize to reach the ends of the earth with the gospel? Who should we hire for a staff position? How do we organize our volunteers in key ministry areas? How do we allocate all of the resources that God has entrusted to this body of believers? Should we build a building? Should we buy a piece of property? And I could go on and on and on and on with the myriad of questions that every local church must face. We all have to make, every local church has to make key decisions. And here's what I want you to understand about that process. God does not leave us to our own devices when it comes to making major decisions. As a matter of fact, I want you to leave this room today knowing that God leads His church. And that's good news. God leads His church. And I want to show you this morning how God does that as we continue our study through the book of Acts. So open with me to Acts chapter 1. We're going to read verses 15 through 26, Acts chapter 1, verses 15 through 26. I want to ask you this morning, if you are physically able to please stand with me in honor of the reading of God's holy word. In verse 15 it says, In those days Peter stood up among the brothers, the company of persons was in all about 120, And said, Brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in this ministry. Now this man acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness, and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all his bowels gushed out." And it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the field was called in their own language, Akeldama, that is, field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, May his camp become desolate, and let there be no one to dwell in it, and let another take his office. So one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning From the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. And they put forward two. Joseph, called Barsabbas, who was also called Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, You, Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which one of these two you have chosen to take a place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they cast lots for them, and the lot fell on Matthias. And he was numbered with the eleven apostles. Let's pray together this morning. Father, we come to you in Jesus' name. 
And as we think about the glory of Christ, we've been reminded this morning that, Lord Jesus, you stand alone. And we stand amazed. We are grateful, Lord Jesus, for your saving work in our lives. And we want to exalt you in this moment. We want to fix our eyes upon you. And we expect you to work in our lives in a mighty way. Lord, by your Spirit, would you help us to learn your Word and apply it to our lives, apply it to our church, so that we might be transformed, so that we might live in a way that is more like Jesus. And we'll thank you, Lord, for that grace. I ask you to establish my steps in your Word. And we ask and pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You can be seated. God leads His church. God leads his church. That's what this passage is about. Now, just a word of context. We've seen in our study of Acts that Luke records the final moments of Jesus upon this earth before he ascended back to his Father to sit at the right hand of God. And in those last moments, he gives his disciples their marching orders to be his witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and the uttermost parts of the earth. And then uh, he tells them to go back to Jerusalem and, and stay there until the promise of the Father, the Holy Spirit, comes to empower them in a new and fresh way to do what he has called them to do. And after he gives them these instructions, he ascends back to heaven. And we pick up the story uh, right after uh, that encounter between Jesus and his disciples. And we see an interesting passage unfold here that gives us some insight as to how God leads his church. So what I want to do this morning is I want to give you four thoughts about decision-making in the life of the local church. Four thoughts about decision-making in the life of the local church. And then, at the end, I want to share with you a spiritual secret. So kind of put that somewhere in the back of your mind, but at the end of the sermon, I'm going to give you a secret. I'm going to let you in on something, okay? So just kind of stay tuned. Don't leave before the service is over. And we're going to just unveil a secret together today. But first, four thoughts about decision-making in the life of the local church. Number one, a church should make decisions in the atmosphere of prayer. A church should make decisions in the atmosphere of prayer. Notice what it says in verse 15. In those days. In what days? Well, back in verses 12 through 14, we see the days that... Uh, Luke is referring to, he's referring to a time of prayer. We know that after Jesus ascended to the Father, before the day of Pentecost, which we'll study in chapter 2 where the Holy Spirit falls on the early church, we know that there were 10 days where the believers, the followers of Christ, went to the upper room and prayed together, waiting for the promise of the Father from on high. So they had a 10-day prayer meeting. We studied that last week. We talked about prayer in the life of the church last week. And they're praying. In the midst of that prayer meeting, Peter stands up uh, to say there's a a decision that needs to be made. So if you think about that, look in your notes. This decision that they're going to make in this passage was made in the midst of a 10-day prayer meeting. In those days... That's when they made this decision. So prayer was the very atmosphere of what they were attempting to decide. And I want you to note that this decision that they make was committed to the Lord in prayer. If you look down 
in verse 24, right before they make their final decision, it says, and they, what? What? They prayed. It says, and they prayed. So the atmosphere of this decision was prayer. The very environment was prayer. And before they made their decision, they prayed. The decision was committed to the Lord in prayer. Now, what can we learn from that? Here's what we can learn. Everything we do as a church should be bathed in prayer. Everything we do as a church should be bathed in prayer. There's an interesting story over in Joshua about a a nation um, deceiving the Hebrew people. You know, God told Joshua to lead the nation of Israel into the promised land and drive out all the other nations so that those nations would not be a snare to them to lead them to, to worship their false gods. Well, there was a small group of people named the Gibeonites, and they heard about the Hebrews and how God was giving them victory after victory after victory. So they said, we better make a treaty with them so they don't wipe us out. And so they came up with an intricate plan of deception. You know what they did? They put on old clothes and old shoes, so it looked like they had traveled from a far distance. And they told the Hebrew people, we've come from far distance, and we want to make a treaty with you. And they deceived them because they were really from the promised land, and God wanted uh, to, to, the Hebrews to drive them out. The Bible says something interesting before they made their decision to enter into a treaty with the Gibeonites. The Bible says that Joshua, the leader, did not inquire of the Lord. And they decided to enter into this treaty with the Gibeonites. And it caused all sorts of problems down the line for the Hebrews because they made a decision without inquiring of God and it got them into trouble. So we learn from that and we learn from this passage that everything we do as a church should be bathed in prayer. We should not move forward until we have inquired of the Lord, right? That's what we should walk away with. And so our church should be a church of prayer. Uh, my goal is that when people come and they're around Longview Point for very long, they walk away saying, this is a praying church. When people are around you as a, as a family or an individual, do they walk away saying, this is a praying person? Does prayer bathe your life? Does prayer saturate your life? Are you a person? Are you a family? Are we a church of prayer? We want to pray corporately. We want to pray in our connect groups. As a matter of fact, this morning, instead of doing a lesson as we normally do, this morning, because I preached on prayer last week, we just gave our connect groups a prayer guide. So right now, there are connect groups in our building, and they're praying for revival, and they're praying for lost folks, and they're praying for God to move in a mighty way. Why? Because we want to promote an atmosphere of prayer at every level in the life of our church. Why? Because the church should make decisions in the atmosphere of prayer. But there's a second principle here about decision-making in the life of a local church. A church should make decisions with the Bible as their sole authority for faith and practice. A church should make decisions with the Bible as their sole authority for faith and practice. And look what it says there in verse 15. In those days, Peter stood up among the brothers. The company of persons was in all about 120 and said, Brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke before him by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in this ministry. So Peter's saying the Old Testament scriptures uh, foretold 
that there would be one who would betray Jesus Christ. And that has happened in fulfillment of those scriptures. And he says that he was one of the twelve. Jesus chose twelve disciples who would take on the role of apostles, and he was one of the twelve. And then we get a little bit more information about Judas in verse 18. Now, this man who had been a guide to those who arrested Jesus, who had betrayed Jesus, this man, Judas, acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness. Remember, uh, the religious leaders gave him some money for his betrayal of Jesus Christ. He didn't want want to give it back, and they just ignored him, and a field was purchased with this money. And it says, He required a field with the reward of his wickedness, and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all his bowels gushed out. Grisly details. And it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem so that the field was called in their own language, which is Aramaic, Akeldama, that is field of blood. And so you read that and say, wait a minute, wait, I thought Judas hung himself. Here it says he fell and, and his, his bowels gushed out. Well, how do you reconcile that? Well, both are accurate. Probably what this tells us is that Judas hung himself and at some point his body fell, plummeted uh, to the bottom of this field. And when he plummeted there, uh, that's when all of these grisly things happened to him. Uh, he, he bust open in the middle and his bowels gushed out. And so both are uh, accurate. He hung himself and then this uh, part of the story happened. But here's the point. Peter's saying, Judas betrayed Jesus and he's dead And there are only 11 people left, 11 original disciples. We need to replace Judas. We need a 12th disciple. They say, wait, how did Peter know to do that? Well, he quotes the Bible here. Look what it says in verse 20. For it is written in the book of Psalms, and he quotes from Psalm 69, 25. May his camp become desolate and let there be no one to dwell in it. In other words, he's quoting a psalm that speaks of the enemies of God. He's saying the enemies of God have forfeited their right to a place of privilege. And he's saying Judas forfeited his right to a place of privilege and responsibility because he betrayed God. He was an enemy of Christ. And so he's no longer in that office. May his camp become desolate. May there be no one to, to dwell in it. And then he quotes from Psalm 109, verse 8, when he says, let another take his office. Psalm 109 prophetically spoke to the time of Jesus. And it prophetically spoke that that there would be, need to be a replacement for the betrayer named Judas. And Peter said, that's what the Bible says, that another needs to take his office. So we see here that the Bible is the authority for them even wanting to make this decision. And besides the Old Testament scriptures, the disciples had the words of Jesus. You know what Jesus told them in Luke 22, verses 28 through 30, he said, You are those, to his disciples, you are those who have stayed with me in my trials, and I assign to you, as my Father assigned to me, a kingdom, that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. So Jesus told his disciples, When I come and set up my kingdom on this earth, I'm going to rule and reign, and you will have the privilege of ruling and reigning with me, and there will be 12 thrones that you will sit on judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Now, the disciples here could just do simple math. 12 thrones, and there are 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11 of us. And so the 12th throne is going to be vacated. So we probably need to put somebody in place so the 12th throne will have somebody sitting on it when all this comes to pass, right? I mean, just simple math. So they had the Old Testament scriptures. They had the words of Jesus. And Peter's saying, okay, it's time. 
We need to replace Judas. Put somebody into that office. In other words, they acted upon the clear leading of God's word. The clear leading of God's word. They were making a decision based upon what God's word said. Which leads us to this conclusion. The first question we should ask when confronted with a decision is, what does the Bible say? The first question we should ask, what does the Bible say? Does God speak to this issue with his commandments, with his precepts, with his principles, with his warnings? Does God speak to this situation in his word? What does the Bible say? And whatever the Bible says should guide our decisions. It's what Peter's doing. Here's what the disciples are doing. They are letting God's word guide them. But I want you to know this. I want you to hear me carefully. It often takes courage for a church to affirm and obey the Scriptures as the ultimate authority. The church in America is going to come under increasing pressure to back away from what we know to be true in God's Word. And so if we're really going to be a church that lets the Bible guide us, that lets the Bible direct us, We've got to be a church that's courageous because people are going to try to intimidate us into backing away from the truths of the Word of God. And if you don't believe that, just look at what happened in Houston this past week. A high-ranking political official using legal intimidation to try to intimidate churches to back away from preaching the truth of the Word of God and actually sending out subpoenas for pastor's sermons, they could evaluate the content of those sermons as this, this law that had been passed that was controversial. Uh, they, the, the lawyers want to intimidate the pastors into guiding their flock to stand up for what's right. And it's scary that can happen in America. Listen, that's a violation of the Constitution. That's a violation of religious liberty. That, 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 is, that is wrong. That's always going to be wrong. I heard one pastor say this past week, If you want my sermons, come get them like everyone else. Come sit in the pew and listen. And you can have my sermon. That's a good answer, isn't it? If you want to see my sermon, say, come to church. You can hear every word of my sermon as you come to church. But I want you to know that's that's just a, a foreshadowing of what's coming. There's going to be increasing pressure for churches to back away from the clear teachings of the Word of God. So if we're going to let the Bible guide us, if the Bible is going to be our final authority for faith and for practice, our ultimate authority for faith and for practice, we're going to have to be courageous, aren't we? Because of that social pressure to conform to the ways of this world. And so Peter here is a great example of just standing up and saying, this is what the Bible says. Let's respond to God's Word. Which leads to the third thought about decision-making in the life of the local church. A church should make decisions with complete trust in God. They should make decisions with complete trust in God. Look what happens in verse 21. So one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John to the day when he was taken up from us, One of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. So they give us some parameters for the the next uh, apostle. They they say the parameters are it needs to be someone that's been around 
from the time of Jesus' public ministry, from the baptism of John where Jesus Christ went public until his resurrection, post-resurrection appearances. So they were, uh, had a front row seat for the, the life and ministry and works of Jesus Christ. Those are the parameters, and they're just using common sense here. That would be a good, uh, a good parameter, qualification for the replacement of Judas. And then it says, they put forward two. Joseph called Barsabbas, who was also called Justice and Matthias, and they prayed. And look, they say, you, Lord, who know the hearts of all. Now, I love this. Show us which one of these two you have chosen. Now, at the end of the chapter, they cast lots. We'll talk about that in just a moment. But here they're praying. And they're saying, God, we want to know who you have chosen. That word chosen in the original language is a perfective aorist, which grammatically means that the choice had already been made. God, you've already made the choice. We just want to know the choice. We want to know your decision. And so these disciples wanted to know God's decision. They weren't just going to say, okay, we think this guy, or we think this guy. They want to know who God had already chosen. They want to know God's will on the matter. You see, God's decisions are better than our decisions because he has perfect knowledge. Look what they say as they pray in verse 24. You, Lord, who know the hearts of all. God, you're the one that knows everything. You're omniscient. Our knowledge is very, very limited. You know the end for the beginning. So we know that whoever you decide needs to replace Judas is the best decision. And we know you've already chosen who that is. So we're just going through this, this practice of you showing us who you have already chosen. You see, they were not making a decision, listen, then asking God to bless their decision. They were discerning what God wanted. And there's a big difference between the two. Big difference. You see, making decisions in the church should be an exercise in discovering God's will on any given matter. Because he really does know what's best, right? He really does know what's best. So we should seek his will, seek his face so that we are making decisions that are in line with what he's already decided about a matter. That's what decision making in the life of a local church ought to be. God, we trust you. We know that you know everything. We know that you know, Father knows best. We know that you know best, Father. And so we want to discern, we want to discover your decision on this matter. That's what the disciples were doing. They cast lots at the end, but before they said, God, we're just discerning who you've already chosen. Which leads to the fourth principle about decision making in the life of the local church. A church should make decisions guided by the Holy Spirit. A church should make decisions guided by the Holy Spirit. It says there in verse 24, they prayed, Lord, you know the hearts of all. Show which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they cast lots for them, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven apostles. Say, wait, what is this about? They cast lots. Now, the best equivalent for the casting of lots in our, in our modern day mind is, is dice. When you think dice, don't think gambling, but just think of dice, all right? 
you roll dice and, and whatever the numbers come up is, is how many spaces you move on a game board, right? That's kind of the closest equivalent. So the, the, the disciples had Justice and Matthias. So we're going to cast lots. Maybe they assign Matthias one number and Justice another number. Whichever number comes up, that's the one we believe you have chosen for this role. Now that may look really random, but look in your notes. The disciples, as they cast lots, were trusting God's direction, not fate when they cast lots. They weren't leading things up to fate. So how do you know that? These disciples knew their Bible. You know the Bible says in Proverbs 16, verse 33? The Bible says that the lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is of the Lord. They knew that in the Old Testament, the, the, the casting of lots was a, was a way that God would use to direct his people. For example, over in Numbers chapter 26, verse 55, God ordains the casting of lots to decide the land that was being divvied up among his people. It was a God-ordained way to discover his will on a given matter. And the disciples knew God had ordained the casting of lots. They knew that you could cast the lots, but it's every decision was of the Lord. So they believed as they cast the lots, God was going to make those lots fall just the way he wanted them to. So they would fall to the one he wanted to take Judas's place. So they were trusting God, not fate. And by the way, you can't believe the Bible and believe in fate at the same time. You can't believe that God is sovereign and on his throne and in control, but things happen in a way that's lucky or by happenstance or by fate. Both of those cannot be true. So you either believe in the Bible or believe in fate. You can't believe in both. It's just not possible. The, the Christmas song, which I love, Through the years we'll all be together if the fates allow. That's terrible theology. So I'm going to fix it for you right now. Ready? Through the years we'll all be together if the Lord allows. There you go. Keep singing the song, but just substitute Lord, right? There's no such thing as fates. It doesn't work like that. God's calling the shots. So just be clear here that that the disciples were not just trusting fate. They were trusting God, that he would direct the the casting of the lots, which leads to a very obvious question. Wade, why don't we cast lots today? Well, why don't we do that anymore? I mean, they were trusting God. Why can't we cast lots and trust God? If you look in your notes, there's no further mention of the church casting lots in the Bible because everything changed at Pentecost. Chapter 2 of Acts changes everything. We'll get to that next week. Chapter 2 changes everything. It's when the Holy Spirit falls uh, and and they experience Him in in the new covenant way, in a way different than old covenant saints experience the Holy Spirit as as their empower, as their leader, as their guide. At Pentecost, the Holy Spirit, listen, became the primary guide for believers in churches. At Pentecost, when the Spirit just was poured out upon his, his people, God was signifying that now the Holy Spirit is your primary guide for making decisions. So wait, can you prove that? Well, look what Jesus said over in John chapter 16. John chapter 16, when he was still upon the earth, before he left, went back to his Father in heaven, He gives his disciples a heads up about the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And look what he says in John 16, verse 13. When the Spirit of truth comes, watch this, He will guide you into all truth. 
So Jesus is saying, when I'm gone, Holy Spirit is poured out upon you. You experience him in the new covenant way, different than the Old Testament saints experience the Spirit. When you experience that, the Holy Spirit will be your primary guide, your primary leader for making decisions. And this is exactly the way the New Testament church operated after Pentecost. For example, turn to Acts chapter 13, verse 1. Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas and Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manan, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, that'll be a sermon we need to look closely at when we get to fasting. We'll talk about that. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I've called them. That after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia. See what's happening here? They don't say, okay, Lord, who do you want us to send out? We're going to cast lots to see who the lot falls to. No, the Holy Spirit says, set apart for me. Barnabas and Saul, and they're sent out by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is their primary guide for making decisions. Look over in Acts chapter 16. If you're not convinced yet, Acts chapter 16, verse 6. This is Paul's second missionary journey. And look what it says in verse 6. They went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. So they're seeking where to, as to where they should go on their missionary trip. And the Holy Spirit says, don't go there. The Holy Spirit stops them. And look what it says in the next verse. So passing by Mysia, they went down to Troas. The Spirit of Jesus did not allow them to go one direction. So they would go to another place where he wanted them. And then look over in Acts chapter 20. Acts chapter 20, verse 22. Paul's on his way to Jerusalem where he knew he'd be arrested. He's saying his farewell to the Ephesian church leaders whom he dearly loved. And in Acts chapter 20, verse 22, he says, Now behold, I'm going to Jerusalem. Why? Constrained by the Spirit. Not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. So we see as Paul is journeying, As a missionary, he's not casting lots. Should I go here? Should I go there? The Spirit is showing him exactly where he wants him to go. Major difference. And the the transition from casting lots to the the, the leadership of the Spirit as the primary God happened on the day of Pentecost. That's why we don't cast lots anymore. I like what David Peterson writes, New Testament scholar. He says, it is important to observe that there are no further examples of such decision making in the New Testament. You see, no one else casting lots. As those who were about to enjoy the benefits of the new covenant, the apostles were using a practice that was sanctioned by God, but belonged to the old era. It took place before Pentecost, when the Spirit was poured out in a way that signified a new kind of relationship between God and His people. From Luke's later emphasis on the Spirit's role in giving wisdom, guidance, and direction, it would appear that the apostolic example on this occasion is not to be followed by Christians today. Rather, we are to recognize and respond to the mind of the Spirit among the people of God. That's why we don't cast lots when we make decisions. We believe 
that the Holy Spirit is now our primary guide and we should seek Him. So here's the goal. You ready? Here's the goal for me and for you as a local church. Our goal is to be a Spirit-filled church that is sensitive to His leadership. That's so important. Don't miss that. Our goal is to be a Spirit-filled church that is sensitive to His leadership. And another obvious question arises. Well, how does the Holy Spirit lead? Acts 13, these major moments in redemptive history, the Holy Spirit is just saying. He just speaks. Set apart from me, uh, 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 Paul and Barnabas. He's just speaking. So how does the, the Spirit lead us? How does that happen in today's time? What are the biblical principles that should guide us seeking the Spirit's leadership? Well, let me just give you some thoughts. The Spirit leads by granting wisdom. Sometimes he'll just give you the wisdom to make the right decision. The Spirit leads sometimes by arranging circumstances. So you look at your circumstances and say, the Lord is lining things up for us to move in this area. Sometimes the Spirit leads by illuminating and applying God's Word in our life. He'll, he'll lead us to a verse and show us how that verse applies to our specific situation. And we obey uh, the Word in that moment as the Spirit shows us that. Sometimes the Spirit leads by granting courage to step out in faith. To make a, a, a step of faith where the, the end result's not real clear. The end, the, the end of things is not real clear, but you believe God wants you to go that direction. So He gives you the courage to step out in faith. Sometimes the, the Spirit will just give you the courage to do the right thing. When people are trying to intimidate you to not do the right thing. Sometimes the Spirit leads by impressing His will on our hearts and our minds. Let me say a quick word about a Baptist church, because we're a Baptist church. And we practice here what's called a congregational form of church government. I don't have a, a lot of time to go into different forms of church government. We'll get to some of that as we work our way through Acts. But, but at Longview Point, that means that when it comes to major decisions... Your leaders lead and, and, and seek the Lord and pray, and they bring to you the direction that, that, that we think we ought to go, and, and we vote. And, and some people think that voting is a very unspiritual process. Because they think voting is like, you know, just looking at the two options saying, well, I, I like this one, not this one. And if more people like this one than that one, that's what you do. And you just kind of walk in and just vote for whatever sounds good. That is not how voting is supposed to work. You see, Baptists hold to a doctrine called the priesthood of the believer. You know what that means? That means that because of Jesus washing away your sins and giving you his righteous standing before God, you as an individual can go directly to God for guidance. You don't have to come to Pastor Wade to get to God, right? You can go directly to God on your own. That's called the priest of the believer. Jesus Christ has washed away your sins, so now you can go directly to God. So here's what we believe. We believe that as we lay before you a big decision, like the end of November, begin December, we'll give you the, the budget, how we believe resources should be allocated for 2015. It's a big decision. As, as we give you that, we believe if you'll really pray about it, that the Spirit won't say different things to different people. The Holy Spirit is God. He's not the author of confusion. Amen? We believe if people will really pray about it and they come forward and vote, then the majority will be God's leadership through individual lives. We really believe that. 
Now, of course, that can, go, that can be sidetracked if we don't seek the Lord, right? If we come in and vote just the popular decision or whatever we think's best, or we, we disagree with this group, so we're going to get more people to vote than they have, and it can go haywire quick. Some of you have been there. But if we're really going to seek God's face and saying, Lord, would you just show me, show me by your Spirit what's the, the, the direction you want us to go, I believe that God will, God, will, God will show us. And the majority is the indication that God is leading us individually and leading us as a church. That's how it works. Now, I believe in strong leadership, that we cast a vision and we give you a plan and strategies and all of that. But we believe the, the people need to be involved in the affirming and, and the decision-making processes. You need all the facts to, to, to make the decision. Because if that's not happening, then it's just autocratic leadership. And I don't believe the Bible teaches that. As we work our way through Acts, we're going to talk about how there's strong leadership balanced by congregational approval. We'll get to that, Acts 15 and some other passages. We'll, we'll talk about that as we work our way through Acts. So that's how we work here. If we're going to be a church that honors God by the way we make decisions, the Spirit has to be involved in the process. If the Spirit's not involved in the process, you're looking at a train wreck. Right? And so, our goal is to be a spirit-filled church that is sensitive to His leadership. Four principles about God leading a church to make decisions. Now, i got a secret for you. You ready? I told you I had a secret at the end of the sermon. A spiritual secret. These principles that we just discussed, and we apply them to the body of Christ... They are also true for the individual. And so, in this room, you have family decisions to make, right? You have individual decisions to make. And guess what? This template that I just shared with you works for individual decisions too. In other words, when you need to make a decision, make sure you bathe it in prayer. Make sure that the Word of God is front and center as your final and ultimate authority for faith and practice. Know that you can trust God and you want to know His will because He knows what's best. And then let the Spirit of God fill up your life. Surrender to the Spirit. Say, Holy Spirit, fill me, lead me, guide me, direct me. So He will lead you in the direction that you need to go. These four things work for families. They work for individuals. And so I believe that there is a great template here for decision-making in the lives of any Christian. We have much to learn from Peter and the early church. So here's the point of the sermon. If I could just sum it up in one sentence, here's the point of all that I've said. When God leads a church, it will be effective in advancing the kingdom. So... We should be passionate and deliberate about discerning God's will. When God leads a church, it will be effective in advancing the kingdom. So we should be passionate and deliberate in discerning His will. God really does know what's best. Amen? So let's figure out what God wants us to do. Let me close with this quote. And this quote really gripped my heart. It's from Ronnie Floyd, who's the current president of our Southern Baptist Convention, he says this. 
God does not obligate himself to our good ideas. God does not obligate himself to our good ideas. We must connect with his heart and vision for the world. Church is not just us coming up with some good ideas. Church life should be about us connecting with his heart and his vision so we can be effective in reaching the lost for the glory of Almighty God.